0: For many generations, to be educated was to be classically educated. To be classically educated generally involved knowing some ancient Greek, and knowing ancient Greek involved knowing some Xenophon. None of these statements have much bearing on our world today, and that's a shame. Xenophon's Anabasis, the subject of our discussion, is a thrilling memoir of the battlefield and ultimately of command, chronicling the author's participation as a soldier of fortune and a daring expedition through what's now Turkey, Syria, and Iraq to depose the king of Persia. But it rapidly became a desperate struggle by an army of Greek mercenaries simply to survive. And the book which Xenophon wrote about the campaign remains a classic study of command, of politics, and of war. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait.
1: December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end
0: in a stalemate. We
1: continue to face a grave situation in Iran. And the people who knocked these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender.
0: Hi, I'm Aaron McLean. Thanks for joining School of War. Uh, We are delighted today to be joined by Shane Brennan, who is Associate Professor of History at the American Uni- University in Dubai and is the co-editor of the new Landmark Xenophon's Anabasis. Shane, thanks so much for joining today.
1: Thanks for having me, Aaron. Can, can I,
0: I just start by saying um, how uh, personally excited I am at the appearance of this volume. For for those who don't know, um, the Landmark series, and there are now, what, five or six books in the series? Yeah. Yeah. Remarkable contribution. I, I Since I was an undergraduate, Reading Thucydides. I had the, the landmark Thucydides. Um, and these are these lavishly um, illustrated. It, it, it's true that they are lavishly illustrated. But that's not quite that doesn't quite sum it up. It's not pretty pictures. It's maps, um, appendices, ways to help the, the student who is not an expert in, you know, in this case, uh, uh, you know, fourth century, fifth and fourth century Greek history orient themselves to the realities and the context of the text they are reading, and this, like the volumes that preceded it, just is extraordinarily helpful and thorough. You've walked the route um, that Xenophon walked in the Anabasis personally. I want to talk about all of that, but how did you come to to work on this particular project and come to work with the, the landmark series?
1: I guess I come at it from um, an interest in travel. Uh, I've I've had a great passion for travel and travel writing and and when this book came my way a long time ago now um it struck me as being a really interesting account of the region at that time um and i was interested um to to see what would be still still around from the time that xenophon wrote um so i i took the idea to to retrace the route on foot um and and i did that uh, I was probably quite lucky in that the, the geopolitical environment at the time was favorable. So I was able to, to go through countries that I mightn't have been able to easily afterwards, which is not to say it was, it was always easy at the time. Um, but it, it, was, it, was, uh, it was a wonderful trip, um, and it, it was a great way to travel. One of the things when I, when, I, when I had the idea to do it was I wanted to travel on foot. Um, I feel we, we may lose a bit. In the modern world when we travel um in machines because we tend to cross the landscape very quickly and and we miss things um but when you walk um there's a kind of a truth to it you feel every step and and you experience everything um which of course can have its downsides as well but um that was that was what what brought me to this and and i i did the route i completed it and then i i wrote a book about it um again a travel book um, but I also came to understand that there was a lot more to Xenophon's book than just um, a travel story. Um, and, uh, I, you know, it, it's, it's, it's probably true to say that it's not a text that in modern times has maybe been fully appreciated because it, there's so much in it. And I'd almost wager that any academic you ask, um, to explain the book or to answer the question, what is it? We'll give you a different answer. Um, hmm. I would have started off by saying, well, it's a travel story. Um, but then as I grew to understand more about Xenophon and the text, then you know, that, that, evolved, that evolved over time. And I then got into the academic side uh, where I've, I've happily been um, spending my time for the last uh, 20 years well, mostly working on this, uh, this text.
0: So let's let's talk about Xenophon for a bit. Um for listeners who may not be familiar with his career and his writings.
1: Um who who was he? So he Xenophon was was an Athenian and he lived he was probably born uh about the beginning of the Peloponnesian War which started in in 431. So he he grew up in a time of war which is something I think important when we when we come to his writings um he grew up in very interesting times uh he was an associate of many uh, important statesmen in the region and maybe most interestingly he was a student of socrates and that influence comes comes through in his writing uh so so that would be kind of a a, a general uh a re, an athenian um, from the late 5th century who uh would have been well-connected, and interested in the world around him.
0: In Athens in the late 5th century, talk about the city and and talk about what's happened recently um, before Xenophon makes his decision to, uh, you know, become a kind of soldier of fortune and and go off up into into Persia and Mesopotamia.
1: Well, the Peloponnesian War, which I I started with, ends and we get a civil war at Athens um, in which... The, the democratic side is victorious and Xenophon may at that point be finding himself marginalized as somebody who would have been associated, though not necessarily a participant in uh, the, the regime that that ruled immediately after that was installed by the victorious Spartans in the Peloponnesian War. Um, Xenophon would have been linked with that side. Um, so when the, the other side came to power, the democracy, it, uh, the outlook for him probably wasn't great. And so when an opportunity such as the one we're, we're, we're going to be discussing today came along, he probably didn't take a lot of, uh, it didn't take a lot, of, a lot to persuade him to do that. Um, the opportunity was to, to join Cyrus the Younger, who's a, a Persian prince of great ambition, who decided that he wanted to become the king himself. Um, so he started to raise an army of Greek mercenaries together with his own troops um, in his own satrapy in, in what will be today uh, Western Turkey. And um, Xenophon was one of those who joined him, um, though not, as he is at pains to tell us, not in a military capacity. Um, and that leaves us to to kind of work out for ourselves what his motivation for joining that expedition was um there's an interesting little story as well about his joining which is that when he was contemplating it he did like i suppose any of us would do we would seek out advice and xenophon went to um socrates to ask him what his advice was and because it was a decision a very momentous decision socrates didn't feel he had enough knowledge to advise xenophon himself so he did he sent him to Delphi to the Oracle. But there was then uh, a slight problem in that Xenophon didn't actually do what Socrates told him to do. Rather, he went to the, or- the question he asked the Oracle was, um, to what God should I sacrifice for the journey I'm going to undertake, rather than asking, should he undertake the journey or not? Um, so Socrates wasn't that pleased when Xenophon came back with this answer. But he said, as as you've asked your question that way and you've got your answer, you must do what the god tells you. And so, uh, with that, Xenophon set off to join Cyrus in Asia.
0: So, so Cyrus the Younger, what, what's his what he, he wants to be the king? You know, what's his grudge against Artaxerxes and, and what's his plan? How's he going to use these, these Greeks?
1: The justification for his rebellion is thin, I think we have to admit that. And that is a problem for Xenophon as a, as a pupil of Socrates because it looks very much like that cyrus um didn't accept the the fact that his bro- his older brother was the rightful king um and he wanted that position for himself so it looks like naked ambition uh a very uh socratic circumstance which um as i say it was awkward for xenophon um so so cyrus um decided in any case he was going to try and, uh, and win the throne for himself. He had, an, he had an army of local troops under his command, levies, maybe around 30,000. Um, and he then hired Greek mercenaries to the, maybe around 10, 12,000. Um, the Greek, Greek soldiers had a good reputation and they had come out of a very hard campaign, many of them in the Peloponnesian War. Greek hoplites especially were were formidable in formation. So Cyrus banked on this Greek contingent to be his cutting edge uh, against his brother. Um, So broadly, that was one side of his plan. Another was to get there quickly. Um, And so he he took a a rather direct route from Western Anatolia, modern Turkey, to Babylon, Babylonia um, in modern Iraq. With some trials along the way, they arrived on the battlefield and Cyrus ordered the Greeks to attack the, the enemy center, which was where the king was situated. Persian kings tended to, to situate themselves in the center of the battle so that they could give instructions on to either side and they would get there. The instructions would get there quickly. But the Greek commander didn't, controversially didn't uh, obey that order. And instead, he kept his force beside the river the euphrates river and they attacked the enemy in front of them um that enemy as it happened gave way so there was no opposition to speak of and the greeks thundered down along the euphrates in the meantime cyrus ironically was worried that the king would then get behind the greeks and so to prevent that happening he himself and his personal guard of 600 charged at the king um what must be one of the great heroic charges of history And there was a fierce battle, Cyrus is said, to have struck his brother, injured the king um, quite severely, maybe. But then Cyrus himself was struck down, um, a spear striking him in the cheek. He hadn't worn a helmet. Um, He took his helmet off before the battle to show his fearlessness or as to symbolize his transparency or, or, or whatever. But uh, Cyrus was killed in the battle, and thereafter the king cut off his head and his right hand.
0: And, and it's striking that the you know the the book comes down to us called the March Up, uh, and you know you've just given the um, uh, the the main bullets of uh, of an extraordinarily harrowing um, and interesting story. But it's really just the start; it's the first book of of a much longer text. Right, the rest of the text is. Is everything that happens next, um, in which I guess Xenophon really comes to the fore. So, so they have a you know success on the battlefield, um, but then obviously at the moment of uh, of achieving real success, the whole purpose of the enterprise dies. Um, what position do the Greeks now find themselves in, and and how does Xenophon emerge as a as a leader here?
1: After the battle, the Persians come and demand their weapons as the victors, but the Greeks dispute that. Um, the Persians are the victors, they say that they are the victors. Um, So there's some negotiation goes on, but the the upshot of it is that there's an agreement between the Greeks and the Persians, which is that the Persians under the the great Satrap Thysaphernas will lead them under certain conditions back to Greece. And so the two armies set off together along the Tigris River into northern Mesopotamia. But the Persians, I suppose, are not so keen to let this pass we have a foreign army uh well not not a wholly foreign army but we have a large contingent of greeks have just marched into the heart of the empire w- w- virtually without loss i mean incredibly xenophon tells us that the only casualty was some guy got run over by a chariot um so so one is inclined to think that the king is not keen to let this um let this group go back um unmolested as it were at the junction of the the tigris and as Zab, modern Zab rivers, they they engage in talk. And Tissaphernes invites the Greek leader, the one who disobeyed Cyrus's order on the battlefield, to come to his tent and talk all this over because there'd been a tension building between the two sides. They then agreed as the outcome of the meeting that the next day the Greek commander would bring other Greek commanders back uh, and they would identify the people who'd been intriguing against each other. So who were the people that was, were responsible for building the tension between the two armies? But when they, when they arrived the following day, the Greeks were seized by the Persians. Um, so effectively, we had a, a, a decapitation strike on the Greek commands. This is the point where Xenophon is introduced into the story. Um, and he does via a series of uh, elaborate and stirring speeches that he delivers to the men um, to exhort them to defend themselves and, and to uh, be honorable Greeks and to fight their way back to Greece if necessary. It's it's
0: striking, you know, when we uh, we think of or when I think when most people think of the military, um, they don't think of it as an almost kind of democratic group that needs to be persuaded um, to do this or not do that. Um, but this is the situation that Xenophon finds himself in. Are the soldiers Predominantly Athenian, or are they drawn from across, from across Greece?
1: Oh, that's a nice question. Yeah, uh, they're, they're predominantly drawn from across Greece. There would be comparatively few Athenians there, mm-hmm. um, which might raise a question about Xenophon's particular leadership style. So, but, but it, it, the point that you make, um, I think, is one that, that Xenophon tries to get across. And I, I was listening to, to last night to your first podcast with um, General McMaster and it, it it struck me that um modern soldiers are are very much bound to follow their orders in this case, we have mercenaries who um, are not bound by by um by their their commission as it were to anyone and so they need careful handling um, and so you Xenophon demonstrates ways in which in which that can be done the the battle that you des- you describe are that uh General McMaster describes um, in Iraq. It's actually very close geographically to, to the battle I described, where, where Xenophon and the Persian king uh, were fighting. And that's just kind of really interesting. And then one of a number of parallels that came to my mind when I was listening to that uh, very interesting podcast.
0: And, and you know, you're, I don't know if we actually said this for folks who don't, you know, the, they don't have a map in front of them of the, of the march, but the, you know, the army walks through Turkey the fight happens in in Iraq, modern day Iraq, uh, and then the retreat is is back up north again into the high ground of you. Do you go you don't go do you go through Syria on the way out or you come through Syria on the way in, on the way in, on the way so you go through Syria into Iraq and then on the way out back into Turkey, up to the up to the Black Sea. Yeah, exactly. um, so how, how, as somebody who's walked the route, what what did what did that personal experience how did that inform your 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 work on the book? What did you learn um, from having seen it not not only firsthand but actually on your feet um, that helped you appreciate uh, the history?
1: Well, I mean, w- one of the problems when you deal with an ancient text is is trying to establish what you're dealing with. Um, uh, is it you know are we have we got the absolute truth here or is there some element of fiction? Uh, Xenophon himself has has written another book, uh, again related to Persia. Um, the, the Chiropedia, that um, uh, there are a lot of fictional elements in it, though it may in some respects be based on history. So, so one could legitimately ask of this book, of Xenophon's Anabasis, I mean, how accurate is it? Xenophon gives us tremendous detail. Um, is, is that detail simply a backdrop to enable him to talk about leadership and the things he's interested in? Or is it a real framework? Is, does it actually exist? And if so, why? What, what was his aim in doing that? Um, so, so in walking the route, I was able to, to establish that, the, the veracity of the, of the March record, um, and also to be able to, to see the things that he, uh, he described in his book. And one of the things, I'm just, just going off script a little bit, but one of the things on the journey was to take two examples. He describes a fountain in Turkey, a booming fountain. When I passed by there in, in, 2000 and, in 2000, the fountain was there. It's not there anymore. Turkey has experienced quite significant ecological change. Lakes have dried up. Water has, has disappeared. It's no longer there. Um, going up the Tigris in Mesopotamia, um, just before the event where the Greek commanders were seized, uh, shortly after that, we come to the ancient cities of Nimrud and Nineveh which when I visited them were, were intact. I don't know what they look like today after a period of, Mm -hmm. of, uh, ISIS occupation, um, who, you know, famously didn't like these sort of reminders of previous civilizations. Um, so, so even, even on that, you know, short, even in just the 20 years have passed, we've lost so much and, and, you know, being able to actually have seen it and, and record it as being there. Um, is a kind of a, a validation of xenophon's record so kind of the, the back end of your question how it informs my my kind of engagement with the text would be it's already a layer of of, of truth that he's laid down and so when he talks about leadership and, and i'm sure we're going to come on to that um we know that it's al- we know that it's not fictional there's a real historical characters on a real expedition in a real environment and I think that's important because the reader, the reader, feels more involved and is more engaged by by the text than they would be if they weren't. If it was more kind of fictional, not to say that fiction can't achieve the same ends, but I think there's a power in in uh, using the the actual journey to um, to tell your story.
0: So let's let's uh, in a moment let's talk about leadership and let's talk about about him as a writer, but. Before that, let's let's close off the actual account. So, so they, they make it back, right? Um, and and how does what what role does Xenophon play in that? Um, what does the final you know stage of the journey look like?
1: So they they do make it back um, after a, a harrowing period of travel in the winter in Eastern Anatolia. So af, after Xenophon has roused them um, in Mesopotamia, they're harassed by the Persians for. For another period of time, but then they come to mountains which belong to a tribe called the Kardukoi. Now, the Kardukoi were regarded as, as quite a, a formidable people. indeed, a whole army sent by the Persian king to subdue them once was said to have um, nobody is said to have survived the expedition. So the Persians seemed to have funneled them into these mountains, and once they went in. I would, I would say that Tissaphernes, the Persian commander, felt that his job had been done and done very well. Um, and they probably never expected to see the Greeks again, at least not as an intact unit. But as Xenophon tells us, uh, they, they they persevered against enemies and the weather, ferocious weather, uh, winter in eastern Anatolia is pretty harsh. Um so they survive that. And then maybe um, in the high point of the whole story, they reach the Black Sea and they come in sight of it in, in, um, on Mount Thekes. And, and there's a famous cry from the Greeks, the sea, the sea, uh, which um, really kind of marks the end of their, the hardest phase of their journey. So, so they, they arrive then at the Black Sea. Um, and the, ideally, they would have proceeded from there by ship but they didn't have enough boats in spite of trying to commandeer them on the sea with, with some boats that they'd pirated. Um, so they had to continue on foot. So they, they, they basically went along the Black Sea coast as far as Sinop, where they did get ships. And then they sailed quite a, quite a way to Heraclea, um, And then they marched the remainder of the journey to the Bosphorus, which where we have modern day Istanbul, crossed into the city, caused some trouble there, and then um, spent a winter in Thrace, uh, where eventually they were co-opted by the Spartans who were about to start a war in Asia against the Persians. And they effectively ended back where they had started in Sardis, Mm. in, in Lydia, in Western Uh, Anatolia, this time fighting for the Spartans against the Persians. And guess who was there in the Persians? Their old enemy, Tissaphernes.
0: If you take a step back, you know, it's 2021. And I think there's a you could make a case that Xenophon is a bit out of favor. Um, I, you know even even in the broader context of the classics being out of favor the Greeks being out of favor Xenophon star compared to where it once was where it was a you know I think the Anabasis was sort of an established school text for a long time for everyone reading Greek it would have been quite common to read this as a schoolboy. it seems to me as somebody who had a, a kind of classical education myself that he is not an author um, that is tremendously popular with those setting the, the curricula for schools um, so what does he have to say about leadership what 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 would be of interest to um, to military professionals or, or or just people interested in leadership and history today? Uh, from from what he's teaching,
1: I think. Well, one thing to to kind of say, um, Xenophon didn't write this until some thirty years after the event, um, and that's really striking. And it prompts us to to question what he was doing and and why did he write the book then? And when I when I re- mentioned listening to your 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 earlier podcast. I wondered what would it be like if if somebody who had participated in in the Iraq War, nineteen ninety, wrote a book today. What would that book look like, and what would they want to tell us? Um, so I think we need to we we take Xenophon's book in that context, um, and and we 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 take it as the work of a sophisticated author, um, who's uh, as I mentioned earlier a. a, a Pupil of of the late Socrates, and very interested in in promoting Socrates's um, worth to to his his audience. Um. So so I think that I would start with that point, and then um, I would I would look at what the core lessons he's he's telling us about um, about leadership are. Oh well, well, let me actually. Can I just read you um, something that he says about about leadership in another book, The Memorabilia. This is about the life of Socrates. Kings and rulers, Socrates said, are not those who hold a sceptre, nor those who are chosen by the masses, nor those on whom the lot falls, nor those who owe their power to force or deception, but those who know how to rule. It sounds, maybe the tale there sounds a little bit obvious, but Xenophon shows Um, in his Socratic works how Socrates spends his life meeting people who think they know how to do things. So Socrates will meet um, somebody on the street who tells him um, he wants to be a general in the army. And Socrates says, great, um, you know, how are you going to go about and do this? And he starts to ask questions and it quickly becomes apparent that the person actually knows very little about generalship. And I think his view is that the critical element is um, willing obedience. Um, it's being able to, to, to achieve that with those who um, you are leading. Um, and, and he gives us ways to do it. I mean, you know, you have to, to the leader turn that has to show himself to be the best. He has to be, he has to do what he asks. He can't order a soldier to do something unless he himself does it. And maybe thirdly, he has to be able to provide for his men. Um, he has to be able to provide them with food and shelter. And in the particular circumstances of of the retreat that we're discussing, he has to be able to turn up booty as well, because these are mercenaries and, and they want they want um, you know they want money. Um, so so I think the 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 takeout for me of his concept of leadership is that willing obedience. Um, that I think is is critical. So
0: let's let's talk a little bit m- more about about the method. Because again, going back to my my earlier point that for those, for example, setting texts that undergraduates might read, I I think there's this common assumption that there's just more to Thucydides. There's more of interest in Herodotus. Um, Xenophon is a sort of curmudgeonly, you know, retired colonel, uh, if you will. Yes. Um, without a great deal to contribute on the the, the, the most profound questions of of mm-hmm. politics, you disagree with it and you find him to be a, a subtle and an interesting writer there's what maybe one way to get into that is he goes along as a cavalryman or as someone who's professionally a cavalryman uh, into this military expedition, but not in a military capacity what What on earth does that mean or, or indicate
1: yeah exactly um well, I did say that cyrus's expedition was suspect from a from a Uh, a moral perspective because he didn't seem to have any just cause other than his own ambition that that really seems to be the nub and xenophon doesn't disguise that Um, he even he even plays on it and and tells us that um his mother was involved because his mother just liked him more than she did the older brother Um, so it's awkward for him to come forward and say i joined this expedition with a principle at stake because there wasn't other than Cyrus's ambition. Mercenary service also was not something that um, that educated uh, Greeks, well-off Greeks, shall we say, um, it wasn't that well looked upon. For the simple reason, if you hired yourself to somebody, you were beholden to them, um, and at the least, there was a risk, you know, that you might, you might, your interests and the interests of your city-state would be in conflict because you were in the, in the pay of somebody else. So it was really important for him to distance himself from the expedition and from mercenary service. And that's where I think, that's how I think we can explain his elaborate declaration on his own introduction to the story that he followed neither as a captain nor a general nor an ordinary soldier.
0: Um, and, and you were working on a, a book on Xenophon right now, correct? In addition to this?
1: I, I am, and I've just finished it, in fact. And, I, and I, Congratulations. Oh, Thank you very much, Aaron. Hopefully, it will be published uh, next summer.
0: Uh, and w- would you mind, uh, if you could, what what is the what is the upshot of the of the book? what does it survey exactly?
1: The, the title of the book is Xenophon's Anabasis: A Socratic History. So it's um, it's arguing that Xenophon embeds in his history telling um, a Socratic perspective. Um, so so we've got Socratic values, for example, are perpetuated through. Um, events and, and people in the story. Um, so it, it really argues for the, for the deep influence that Socrates had on Xenophon's life and on his writing. Um,
0: and Socrates is killed and executed in what, 399? Yes. Xenophon would have been what, in his early to mid-20s?
1: Yeah, around 30, I would guess. He would have been around 30, yeah, yeah.
0: Around 30, okay, got it. Um, many of the, the events that he's writing about in his military service sort of follow that point. Um, and yet here in his older age, as a, as a writer, it's this um, it's this relationship of his youth that seems to hover over, uh, you know, events like the events of the Anabasis that have nothing directly to do with Socrates.
1: I, I think it speaks to it speaks to the power of Socrates uh, and the fact that that, that at that time um, people were still writing about him. Uh, but, but also it also tells us that Socrates was a contested figure. You know, maybe we kind of usually take the story that, you know, Socrates was unjustly um, found guilty by the Athenians. But but I think, you know, it's not black and white. The Athenian jury was a sophisticated one and they made their judgment on the basis of the evidence they had, which would have been a lot more than we did. And they judged that that Socrates probably ultimately they were saying he wasn't contributing the way they would like to athenian democracy and athenian society um so so we have to i think in we have to to see that um a lot of people were distrustful of him and so so xenophon may well have felt that he wanted to be part of a movement that tried to to revive um revive interest in socrates and demonstrate crucially that he wasn't um a a malign figure uh, that quite the opposite he was a very positive role model and uh, my my core argument um in in the in the forthcoming monograph is that xenophon on the retreat is a model student of socrates um so he is um he's doing what a pupil of Socrates should have done had he found himself in the same situation. So the whole book is a testament to the worth of Socrates,
0: as I argue. Shane Brennan, uh, I'll look forward to reading that book. And and thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you very much, Aaron. I appreciate it. This is a Nebulous Media production. Find us wherever you get
1: your podcasts.